So welcome to Savvy Sab's podcast on call-in. This is episode 13, Progressive's New Strategy. The Democratic Party has found new methods to prevent progressives from obtaining power in D.C. This further proves my point that progressives need a new strategy. Let's talk about it. So first and foremost, I do want to introduce guest speakers. We have Case Study QB. Case, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey, what's going on? Uh, Much love to the audience. Much love to Savvy Sabs and Courtney. I'm looking forward to having a great discussion. My name is Case Study QB on Twitter. You could call me Case for short. And um, basically, I clip uh, mainstream media clips that I think um, progressives need to know and and need to. um, And what I love about it is how it's um, curated by other independent media, such as Savvy Sabs. I love it when you always use my clips and I, I appreciate the shout outs as well as hard lens, hard lens media, Brianna joy gray, everybody pretty much use these clips and we, we educate each other on the buffoonery of the mainstream media and, and what the, what we would call quote unquote, what the normies watch. So we could kind of relate more to where they're coming from. And um, I think it's helpful. All right. And uh, thank you very much. Savvy. Awesome. And we also have Courtney. Can you introduce yourself, Courtney? Hello. Hello. What's up? Um, Thank you so much for having us. I'm here with Keish. We are the Bank Sisters. Oh, my God. I can't believe I'm meeting Case Study QB. This is so exciting. Okay. I'm (laughs) I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan. Uh, Thank you so much. (laughs) You do great work. It's so important. And wow, I'm like floored. Okay. But we're very excited to um, be here to talk about this because I mean, kind of where we're at, I mean, personally, I don't want to speak for you, Keish, my bad, but like, um, I, I definitely have a little bit of apathy and uh, I, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's feeling that. So I'm excited to talk to everybody and um, hear what strategies can maybe pull me out of that slump. Yeah, I think as far as I'm concerned, I'm uh, so far right now, I'm on the let's let's pull our votes away and, and keep them to ourselves for a little while and see what happens if this whole thing implodes. But I could be dialed back from that. Who knows? So let's discuss. <laughs> Awesome. And Zineb just joined. Zineb, can you introduce yourself? I think you have to just hit unmute, uh, Zineb. It's down in the bottom right-hand corner. Okay, I'll I'll come back. Um, I wish they had a way on this app where you can unmute people yourself, but they don't. Okay, so let's let's talk about this because I saw an episode recently with Brianna Joy Gray and Amy Valella, and Bree was talking to her about what she would do differently going into Congress compared to the squad. And I talked about that last night on my show. And one of the things that was pretty clear to me is that it didn't seem like that question was really answered. Um, I felt like there was a lot of word salad. And I've noticed this increasingly so with new candidates that are running this year is that it seems like they're having a difficult time answering that question. Right. So one of the things that we know to be true is that the Democratic Party is making it more difficult for progressives to, number one, win, and number two, succeed once they get there. So Nancy Pelosi pretty much calls the shots in the House, 
And we've also seen, thanks to uh, Cynthia McKinney, explain to us on Monday exactly how it works in Congress and why they're not able to get these things accomplished when you're going into the two-party system. So that being said, oh, are you good to go, Zineb? So you just got to hit on mute. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sorry about that. My speaker wasn't connected, apparently. <laughs> but hey, guys, <laughs> I'm uh, Zainab Day. I'm actually, I just finished up watching um, the show that you were just talking about where Amy Valello was talking with Bree. Um, I worked with Amy in 2017 um, and mm-hmm. 2020. So it's really interesting to see her race again this time. But uh, really interested in this conversation. I used to work at uh, Justice Democrats years ago, and then I worked at Brand New Congress for four years. So I worked with a lot of these people that have gone on up to Capitol Hill and then, you know, turned their back on us or broke their promises and watched how all of that sort of came to be. So definitely seeing the zeitgeist of people saying we need something different and definitely saw firsthand how electoralism has not worked for us and how frustrating it's been for everybody involved. So I'm really, really interested in this conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much, Zineb. So we're going to break this up into two different parts. Uh, The first part, I want to talk about strategies that have been requested or suggested, but were not applied. And then the second part, I want to talk about what could we do in the future? What are new strategies that we can try to, you know, implement to get something done for us, the people, the voters, those of us who vote. So with the first part, talking about strategies that have been applied and Courtney, I'm going to go to you on this one. I have to give a shout out to Savage Joy and Lucky Burrito because they informed me about this last night. So I actually have never been a member of DSA. So I was not aware of the DSA handbook per se. And what they brought to my attention is that one strategy that we tried to use, force the vote, which was the force the vote town hall. I think all of us remember that asking them to hold their vote for Nancy Pelosi as speaker unless she unless she brought uh, Medicare for all uh, to the floor for a vote. Now, the idea of that strategy was not necessarily to see if it would pass like we knew it wouldn't pass. But the idea was to reveal who's who in Congress so we can get those people out. And what I found out last night is that apparently in the DSA handbook, that is a strategy that they are supposed to use in reference to health care. So, Courtney, I'm going to let you come in here because I want to hear your take on this. Mm, Amazing. uh, Thank you so much for talking about this. This is um, something that really, really has bothered me um, since I've I've learned about it, which I I learned about this being in the DSA handbook when Force the Vote was happening. Um, That was a point that was often brought up by Bree, by Jimmy Dore, by many people who supported it, um, just trying to understand the rationale behind why this was written out as a strategy in the handbook. It's under their Medicare for All section. Um, It was to be implemented um, under like a Trump presidency because I think they wanted it to happen in 2020. 20, I think, or something, but we didn't get the opportunity until right after um, the elect, you know, beginning of 2020, I believe it was, or 2021, it was something like that. So 
I think it's really interesting. I always ask DSA membership uh, and leadership, too, why it is that they didn't follow their own strategy. And the other thing that's very interesting that happened at the same time when Force to Vote happened is that, like, TYT, for example, took a polling of their audience to see if they supported something like Force to Vote. And, like, 80% of their audience did. And then their host turned around and, like, railed against it. And I think we see that happening quite a bit um, when when it seems like leadership just doesn't fall in line with with what it is that we're looking for. And and I hope that people don't get this, you know, because we're talking about force the vote. I think a lot of people that really clouds their judgment and their mind um, and people think that we're just harping on something that really wasn't a good idea. But uh, the case I would make for that is look at where we are now. You know, I think we've seen. Um, a lot of votes that have disappointed us uh, on the left, a lot of, you know, switching of money, of grassroots money. And so, you know, when you've got not a lot of resources and people like we're the people who are oppressed in this situation, like we don't have a lot of extra time. We don't have extra resources. So I think it is really important for us to hold these people accountable every second that we can and right when we see it happening so that we don't get lured further and further away from the goals. But now I feel like what's happened is we we haven't seen a fight for us. We haven't seen them put their foot down. We haven't seen this ruckus that was talked about. That was an example of bringing the ruckus, because when we're talking about strategies for progressives, the only thing that makes sense to me is that the new progressives would have to make the leadership their number one enemy, not the Republicans. They would have to make the leadership their number one enemy because they're the ones who are standing in the way when we actually have the numbers to make progress. They're the ones who end up backing people like Manchin over progressives. They're the ones who end up backing people like Collier, uh, you know, over, you know, Jessica. So they're they're the ones who are making these decisions that are keeping us away from getting things passed. But if the progressives are going to go in and vote for them or allow themselves to be bullied and not share that information with us, if that's the way that they're going to do this, there's not going to it's not going to work. So you have to say that these people are your number one enemy. And I really do. Um, I would love if there's anybody in DSA who knows a bit more about, um, you know, how that this process went down with why the leadership didn't go through with it. I would love to know more about that. But it was in the handbook and um, and you can find it online. Thank you so much for that, Courtney. Um, I see uh, MJ is uh, waiting to call. So I'm going to go ahead and take his call and then. I'm going to circle back and I'm going to pick up Zineb and I'm going to go to you case about Justice Democrats. So give me just a second. All right. So, MJ, you are on the mic. You just got to unmute. Good afternoon, everyone. Hey, Savvy. Hope everyone's doing good. Um, shoot. I, I sent out a question here on Twitter, just some of the thoughts I'm thinking of on um, these three major questions. Number one is how do we motivate the apolitical class to start voting? There's a lot of people that have checked out of the system. Um, number two, I mean, unfortunately, American culture is very individualistic. So the question is, how do we motivate like the, our individualistic society to work with our local communities? Because we've kind of like disengaged. And then number three is, how do we motivate the red blue voters to start going third party. So those are like three, in my opinion, major questions. Shoot, I don't know if you guys can hear me. 
Yeah. Um, how do we motivate voters? Um, so case, that's where I want to bring you in here because I know you've mm. been hearing from both sides, like people who mm. still want to do this strategy and, and people who want to do something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do we motivate voters? So this is where we are right now. After 2016, you know, Bernie Sanders galvanized the progressive movement, brought a lot of people together. And then that started the Justice Democrats um, two years later after Bernie lost. And then each generation, we see a, a new generation of progressives. So we had the squad was the first. Then the second generation was Jamal Bowman, Corey Bush, et cetera. And now we're into the third generation. But we've seen how the first two have acted while in office. And we've been disheartened by one Jamal Bowman. Um, he was against BDS to the point that DSA was a certain part of the organization was um, discussing if they should kick him out of DSA or not. And then we all know about, you know, force to vote. We also know about um, how weak they have been on the march of Medicare for all. We didn't see anybody from the squad. So all of these things is disenfranchising the progressive, the left vote. And that comes to your question. How do we motivate people? And that's something that, you know, me personally, my mentality is we look at what work, we look at what doesn't work and then what doesn't work. We just we try something new. So um, that's something where I've, I've been trying to work with uh, a couple of people. And I've talked to a couple of call-ins. I talked to Savvy Sabs about a new way of doing um, electoral politics by marrying it with um, mutual aid. And, and as of right now, before if we get a new, a different name later on, that might happen. But as of right now, I'm thinking of calling it the mutual aid political party. So everybody's here is saying, oh, man, here's another third party that's being formed. Well, hear me out. Right. So the basically um, the, the thought came from I said, what if a candidate instead of having going out there and campaigning for themselves and campaigning to get elected, had their volunteers knocking on doors, giving out their pamphlet and saying, hi, I'm with um, Sabby Sabs. Um, I'm running for office. Um, can you vote for me? Instead of doing that, you say, hi, I'm with Sabby Sabs. She's running for office, but we want to know how can we help you? What do you need right now? Is there anything that you need help? Is there anything that you can provide to give help to your neighbors? You know, maybe you're a doctor, maybe you're a lawyer that you we can write you down as a contact that when we have this um, a phone number for people to call for mutual aid and you put yourself as somebody that will volunteer pro bono or for a very low cost, we can use you as a contact. And that's how you start community building from the ground up. And not only are you building your name recognition, but you're also creating a community of, of mutual aid. And I think this is uh, one of the techniques um, is going to be expounded upon and this, this idea is still in development. But I think this can galvanize the progressive, um, the, the progressive energy around something like this. And uh, the most important thing is that you're not knocking on doors saying, hi, are you a Democrat? Are you a Republican? Are you an independent? Um, if you're a Republican, no, we don't want to talk to you. Sorry, we're not going to give you mutual aid. No, this is for everybody. So at the end of the day, you're going to have Republicans coming together, independent minded people come together, Democrats coming together. And I think this is the secret sauce. Right. The biggest issue with third parties is that and, and then I'll give the um, mic back to Savvy. I'll say this last thing. The biggest issue with third parties is that they can't get on the ballot. That's the number one thing. Ralph Nader tried to work hard, um, you know, back in the day as running as a Green Party and, and um, had a lot of issues. 
But I, I was thinking that we learned a lesson from India Walton. Um, she won the primary, but then she lost in the general. And the, the person she lost to was a corrupt um, Democrat who did a write-in campaign. Say so he did a write-in campaign. Why why yep. can't we do a write-in campaign to get people elected? If you can knock on every single door and let's say you get 70% of those people who you knocked on the door, people vote so low on a regular basis that we might be able to overcome with a writing campaign. So I might be wrong. This is just an idea I'm thinking, but I'll give the mic back to Sabrina. I think those are good ideas, Case. Um, I want to bring in Zineb really quick because I want to talk about Justice Democrats because something that I said last night was that I think, you know, to echo what Case was just mentioning, I think we've been going about this the wrong way. Every election cycle, what do we do, right? We donate to politicians, whether they're progressive or not. Uh, some of us have canvassed for those politicians. And we do so with the idea that once they get elected, they're going to try to fight for those policies that they told us they would fight for, right? So like Medicare for all or canceling student loan debt. And it doesn't seem to happen. Once they get into D.C., we lose them. And then we don't have access to them anymore either, which has happened with the squad and other progressive members. And I think back to Justice Democrats and Zineb, I know you know more about this than me. But at one point, you know, Justice Democrats went south, in my opinion, when they decided to take billionaire money. So, Zineb, I want to go ahead and bring you in. Yeah, good question. Um, I did want to I think Case's ideas are awesome. I did want to say that one of the things about electoral politics we have to keep in mind is every single state has different ballot rules. Some states, it's super easy to run as independents and others, they make it almost impossible. Some you can run as a write-in campaign, others you can't. Every state's different and then local and federal are different. And that's where the nuances kind of come into play and, and possibly strategizing around, you know, the ways that we can get people on the ballot in the states where it's easier and then figuring out how we can adjust for the states where it's harder. But, you know, in some places it's it's damn near impossible to run and it's damn near impossible to run not on a party line. That kind of takes me into like um, brand new Congress and Justice Democrats. Um I worked for Justice Democrats as their press director back in 2017. So a long time ago, you know, I helped with the the first Medicare for all push that we did. We saw that we had like um, 230 co-sponsors, ended up increasing it to 230 co-sponsors for Medicare for all. And it still didn't get passed. Um, but what I had learned was, you know, all these people that came off the Bernie Sanders campaign, um, there was these networks in behind in the back scenes that I didn't see until later. And some of them I didn't learn about until just six, seven months ago. But there was one organization, for instance, it was a marketing firm called Middle Seat. Middle Seat brought in, get this guy, $64 million. It's probably more now. I haven't looked at the latest FEC reports. That was for the last, last cycle of FEC reports. But they do all the comms, just about it, for Justice Democrats. They do almost all the squad. They do almost every Justice Democrat candidate. And they're just pulling in all this money, $64 million. And if we think about the small dollar donors, you know, that have given, that's our money. A lot of that's our money that, that people gave to these candidates because they believe in them, going to people who used to work on Bernie's campaign that now have this huge machine. 
These same people with middle seat worked for Joe Biden in 2020. They also were the people that got behind Beto O'Rourke. I think Beto O'Rourke gave them something like $28 million alone to make him look progressive. So um, it's the people that kind of took the Bernie boom with these values and these um, issues that were so important for us. And they basically just turned these issues into a fundraising machine. And then you saw, you know, AOC start a super PAC and give money to a whole bunch of um, a whole bunch of corporate candidates. You saw, you know, Justice Democrats go and start a super PAC, which I almost fell over when I saw that because, you know, we were adamantly against that when I was there. This happened long after the PAC split between brand new Congress and Justice Democrats. But unfortunately, you know, BNC, I helped to grow and worked there for four years. And I saw them slide to where we were no longer recruiting candidates to run because people like Anthony Clark, Sarah Smith, um, Paula Jean Swearingen, Rick Trevino, um, we had actually recruited these people to run from the ground up. They were just regular working people. Instead, they've shifted to where it's people already running. They're looking at, oh, how many, how much dollars are these people raising? How much can we raise off of these people? So these organizations and the movements shift to where they're fundraising. They're no longer doing actions. We did, you know, the abolish ice action started through brand new Congress. Um, we used to do actions on the ground, organizing, mutual aid. These organizations stopped doing that. You know, we're even seeing Sunrise, you know, where they started doing actions and organizing shift to more of the political fundraising arm. So we saw we see that with DSA. We see these organizations shift from being um, action oriented to where they're just fundraising on the next issue. You know, it was it was they were in support of BLM. They were, you know, anti-police while the George Floyd protests were going on. Then they shift to, you know, whatever is the topic of the moment. Now it's going to be gun control for that 15 minutes. Then they're going to shift off of that. While these issues are impacting our lives every single day, it's simply a talking point for these people that are just trying to get elected and not doing a damn thing when they get up there. And I think that that's what's happened with Justice Democrats and all these other orgs is the the corporate money infiltrated and making those big bucks like middle seat has it's it was an opportunity rather to um profit off of Bernie's um platform rather than actually doing something for the left. Thank you so much for saying that, Zineb. Um I don't think a lot of people <clears throat> excuse me, I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. I talked about middle seat uh one time on my show and showing people the receipts where they've been sending that money. And I, I want people to remember that AOC, that was a part of her platform that she would not give our money to corporate Democrats. Um, I want to bring in Courtney here, uh, Courtney and Keisha, because I want to get your take on this as well. One of the biggest problems that we're running into is the money, right? So people keep coming up with all these different kind of ideas, or maybe we can just get more progressive Democrats in and then that'll change the tide. But they're still going to be faced with the challenge of dealing with the money because the party that they're going into is owned by Wall Street and the Speaker of the House also takes corporate money. So I want to bring you guys in. Ooh, gosh. <sighs> easy question. Yeah, easy. We'll solve the question. We'll solve it. We'll solve on, it. <laughs> I mean, 
I guess like the way that I feel about the money and the way that I'm feeling about voting and, and moving forward is um, that I think that the the money that that progressives are asking for should be funneled into direct actions and mutual aids. I mean, mm-hmm. I just personally feel like the times are too dire and we need to build our own movements that are not reliant on politicians. And I just can't find any value in in giving the money to um, to the politicians, uh, you know, just because we have so little of it. You know, we're personally trying to plan a direct action now. Um, you know, Sabi's coming and we're planning with organizing with Zainab and um, and just trying to get lefties together. But it's very difficult because, you know, we're all working class people. We're not made out of money or time. Yeah. Um, so even like volunteering your time for um, a politician, I'm a little weary of because I think that there's a lot of good that we can do with direct act- action and mutual aid. And I'm just not convinced yet that that money is going to actually go towards people who really believe in, in what they claim. So I don't know. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, I mean, I agree. I feel like we have a finite amount of time and money, and I feel like they know that. And, you know, now with inflation and the way everything's going downhill very quickly, um, I think we're in a really hard place because we're not, we shouldn't expect to be able to raise the money, I guess. I feel like that's not realistic. So, I mean, if there's, we need a workaround at this point. We need a way for people to, you know, show their support for, um, for candidates or for, you know, for any, even for a direct action, you know, even without having money, um, I don't know what that solution is. You know, maybe it is volunteering your time. If you're going to volunteer your time to a politician, you know, it's certainly much better spent, I think, at this point, volunteering um, for a direct action. So it's a tough, tough spot. Yeah, I don't know how you stretch the I, dollar I, anymore yeah, you can't. right now. <laughs> right, right. And I, and I understand because, like, that's a big like point that I've tried to make to people. That's a big part of the argument. It's like, where's all this money going? Bernie Sanders raised over a hundred million dollars. Think about what that money could have done for mutual aid, what it could have actually done for people immediately in this country. And I just see every single organization, Sunrise Movement, Justin Democrats, they're bringing in all this money, all this fundraising, like Zineb just pointed out. But at the end of the day, the people that get in, they're not actually fighting for us. So I want to bring up a recent example. Uh, Summer Lee she kind of just seemed to come out of nowhere. I, I've been following like these races for quite some time. Some of the progressive candidates have come on this show. Cynthia Olivia was on. Uh, Ali Dousimer has been on. There's, there's a couple of them that have been on my show before over a year ago. And this name came out of nowhere. And so then I did a little bit of research and I was like, oh, she's a justice Democrat. Of course. Like it just, I feel like the game is like fixed and now I am like skeptical of anyone that runs as a justice Democrat in case I want to bring you in here. Yeah. So I I seen her as a justice Democrat or a while ago, but I was waiting to see her pop up on, you know, revolutionary blackout network, Savvy Saz, Brianna Joy Gray, you know, there's various independent media that I want to see our progressive or leftist candidates go on and the only place i saw her was on tyt which is you know that's fine um to each their own but what i want to really kind of demand is that these candidates get used to coming before the people in the form of independent media right one thing that i admire about bernie was back in the day the first time i heard about bernie was on a show called the tom hartman radio talk show and he was a progressive that he would have Bernie Sanders on once a week for an hour 
and he would just take calls from anybody. It would be like this calling. Imagine this calling right now for an hour, <clears throat> excuse me, where you can talk to Bernie and ask him any question. That's the type of transparency that I'm demanding for, from our leftist candidates um, in the future and what I look to have see come from them. Yeah, that's all well said. Uh, There's something that we've mentioned on RBN, and this is an idea uh, for a strategy. We are encouraging people, if they're going to run, to run independent or to run third party. And I want to, you know, say here, when I say third party, that doesn't just mean MPP. Because when I say that, people are like, what are you going to do? MPP doesn't have any candidates. They're not on the ballot. And they pretend as if there's no Green Party, right? Or if you can't run as an independent. But people say, well, why would they do that? So here's an idea. When you look at the progressives that we have in Congress right now, they are in the Democratic Party. They are going to vote the way the Democratic Party leadership tells them to vote. That's what's been happening with the squad. So if you have people come in, they're progressive, like some of the independent and green candidates, they're still progressive. And sometimes their platforms are even more progressive than the ones going into the Democratic Party. But The difference is if those people get in, they are able to bargain for their vote, which is what the squad was supposed to do. So, for example, if you're independent, just like Bernie Sanders, he's independent. You can push back and say to the Democratic Party, oh, you want me to vote for this bill? Okay, what are you going to do for me? I need you to pass this, this, this and this. And then I'll vote for your bill right now. We don't have that. And the reason we don't have that is because they're in, they went into the same party that's making all the rules. So you have people like Jamal Bowman, who I feel at this point is the weakest member. When I think about progressives, they are not willing to push back because they know that they have to follow leadership because if they don't, then they'll be pushed out. Like we've already seen threats made if they supported Nina Turner, right? So how did that turn out? So I want to hear what people think about that strategy. What if even some of the people who are there, which I don't think they're going to do this, but new people coming in, running more people who are independent and greens and having people who are already in switch their affiliation to independent. And I'm going to pass that over to Zineb. Well, I definitely agree. Like I, I saw the the interview with Amy and I was like, oh man, you know, it I know her and she's she's fierce, you know, but I see it like tempering off with people that I believe in. I'm like, ah, get back to yourself, you know? But when people are running and they're trying to get elected and they run for office, it does change people. I think that, you know, we just have to be wary, like you were talking about, of the orgs that we look at. Like Jamal Bowman, I already, I kind of knew Jamal was that way the whole time. Um, and we saw what happened when he got up there. You're right. And we saw how I was shocked because I saw Amy, I saw um, Nina, Senator Turner came in and was coaching candidates in 2017 when I was with Justice Democrat. She was literally coming in and talking to people, telling them what it was like to run for office. She would show up and knock doors for them and do work, you know, with them. And um, they worked nonstop trying to get Bernie elected in 2020, her and Amy Bellella and Cori Bush. But then I saw where Cori didn't even endorse Nina. And that was that was wild to me. 
what I've realized, you know, through all of this is these endorsing agencies, these uh, <clears throat> these people running, they get it to where they want to be up there and they want to stay in office. And, you know, it becomes about them, not about the people in their district, not about the issues that they're running for a lot of times. It becomes about them staying seated. They start playing that game. They get new advisors around them that are, you know, establishment advisors, and it changes people. So um, I love the idea that Case talked about with mutual aid, you know, and, and candidates doing mutual aid while they're running. There was someone who ran in Chicago. His name was Anthony Clark, and he um, had an organization called Community. And he was doing work through Community the whole time he was running. Um, Tomos Ramos raised $4 million. He suspended his campaign when he was running in 2020, and he raised $4 million for hospitals at the height of the pandemic in New York. And people are like, you're going to lose because you've stopped raising money for your campaign and you're doing this instead. But I thought that was badass because um, he used his platform in order to do something else. Um, so when it comes to believing those organizations, giving your money, I think I agree with Courtney. We have to turn inward. We don't need heroes. We need bullhorns. We need action. We need mutual aid because we can't wait another two, four, eight years and while, while nothing gets done and our, we're suffering, you know. Um, can I Wait, jump in no, here, those Sabrina? Good points. Yeah, go ahead, Case. Yeah, <clears throat> can first um before I comment on what you said, so um, Zaf, I'm sorry, how do you pronounce your name? Zanab. You can call me Zaina. <laughs> That's Zaina. <laughs> yeah. So my question is with Anthony Clark, who I'm very familiar with. I remember when he ran, and but I'm not familiar with the second person you named. This is a a, a real question that I want to ask you as I develop this idea. Um, how beneficial was it? Um, and first of all, doing mutual aid period is beneficial. That's the good thing about this idea is that even if you lose at the end of the day, in the case of, um, the second person you name, he raised $4 million, which is awesome. Right. But I'm just curious because I don't want to lose sight of the electoral side. Like, did it help them win a certain amount of votes or do you know by any chance? It did, but I will say that, um, you know, the establishment works hard against them. Danny Davis get mm. Anthony off the ballot. He literally went around to people that had signed Anthony's petition to run for mm. office and said, mm. this guy really isn't running. Let's take him to court. Wow. So they did, and that got dropped, but Anthony had to spend $70,000 on that, and the Democratic mm. Party knew it. You know, so mm. there were all kinds of things the Democratic Party did to keep these wow. people off the ballot. They literally work mm. against them. We saw it with Paula Jean. We saw it with the real people. So that's mm. why I'm real suspicious of the people that get through, you know, because yeah. I've yeah. seen how hard the Democrats go against, you know, real progressives. So, yeah. um, you know, um, when it comes to the electoral, I think that, you know, it's kind of crazy because Republicans will do things like build libraries. Or they'll do mutual aid or they'll have barbecues locally. Like there's so yep. much better at organizing and people come to those and they give money to churches or they do community mm -hmm. events. Mm -hmm. Republicans do that. They literally do work in the community and they do it while they're in office too. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying they're good guys. I'm saying they know how to get the votes. Um mm -hmm. By showing that they're doing community work, they'll go and they'll plant flowers. They'll plant trees. They'll give to schools. But Democrats, they don't do that. They don't they don't actually do the footwork and they'll knock more doors and they'll talk to people and they'll do exactly what you suggested, Case, 
which mm-hmm. is we're doing this event. Come to us because we're we're going to be, I don't know, having a an event downtown where we're going to have a barbecue. Come join mm. us. And they'll get mm. people out like that. And that's how Republicans stay in office. Wow. They're yes. at organizing. Yeah, I was actually going to say um, I lived in North Carolina. I went to high school in North Carolina. And Zineb is 100% correct. They were always in the community. And they do, like, they don't forget that. They do give money to the churches and to the schools. And they do have barbecues and things like that. Like, that is something where I think a lot of the Democrat politicians, they are out of touch. I mean, we did see uh, recently Maxine Waters tell a group of homeless people to go home. So (laughs) it's like... There's, there's so many differences, I think. Uh, Courtney, you want to jump in? Yeah, I mean, where we are in Virginia, um, you know, we kind of live in a weird spot, like almost in the back roads, but not quite. And to like go to our grandma's house or different places, you have to go down some real, real dirt, real windy roads. And there were Yunkin signs all back there, all through there, you know, and just red signs everywhere for him. And um, you could just tell that the Democrats would never go down that kind of a road. And that's the difference, you know, um, I think like you can just like literally see the difference, I think, in in the Democrat strategy. And that's why I love what Zana was talking about, like even small events. I mean, Republicans will meet in the back of a VFW or something. And if it's just even a couple of them getting a beer, that's a successful event. You know, and I think on the left, we need everything to be so like, oh, did how many people went? Oh, well, then it's not worth it. Oh, well, this isn't going to work this time. So forget about it. And I think like these small events, that's where you really build bonds and you don't know who you could be talking to or, you know, what skills you might have that you can, um, you know, help one another. And so I think like we've really got to refocus um, from from these whatever these strategies the Democrats have and make our own way and that's connecting with working class people and not forgetting the people on these back roads you know I think that's key. Good point, Courtney. Um, I do yes. want to go ahead and bring in Andrew. I see he's waiting, um, to call in. So Andrew, you're on the mic. You just have to unmute. Hello, can you hear me? I can. Hey. Uh... I was just wondering if you guys have heard of uh, Eamon Bundy's campaign for governor in Idaho and uh, what you think about his uh, movement, the Eamon Bundy movement, if you've heard of it or not. I haven't. Have you, Case? I was no, case because... <laughs> I'm actually I'm, I'm actually going to be looking it up. I'm looking it up currently. I have not heard about him, so I'll, I'll definitely check him out. I've heard running on Andrew. But I haven't I haven't learned uh, looked too much into it. But he's, he's running on a lot of stuff. Like, uh, I mean, it's really uh, it's really all over the place. Um, I just know that he's got uh, like a network of people, and I, I believe that they do mutual aid, and uh, and he's got like an app, and he's got all this stuff going on, and. Uh, but he was in jail recently for uh, protest or for something to do with masks. But anyways, he's got a he's got a pretty active group of uh, people here. I live in I'm from Ala- I'm an <clears throat> I'm an Alaskan, but I live in Idaho, uh, so I see a lot of uh, Eamon Bundy stuff, and I'm interested in it. I hope that, like, Jimmy or somebody or you guys have Eamon Bundy on so I can I can learn more about him. And But it seems like they 
I can't tell if he's a legit or not. And it would be helpful if uh, he was, you know, interviewed. And I just think it would be interesting. Is this the, the Eamon Bundy from the, is this the Bundy cult, Bundy cult family? This guy is uh, from a LDS family um, in Arizona, I believe. And I think that they had a standoff with the federal government. Oh, yep. Something like that. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I know who they are now. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I don't know. Cause it like, to me, it makes him more trustworthy that the government and the media don't really like him. Right. Since a lot of the stuff that we hear about him and his family are negative. Um, so that actually, mm-hmm. that actually makes him seem better to me but i i'd like to see him on like a show that i trust like rbn or one of the other ones that uh so that i could get a idea for what his deal is because he's a you know kind of got like the bernie thing going a little bit Hmm. I look I'm it. looking through his YouTube page and um which is a, a plus in my eyes that I think we need to have candidates who if they're not going on independent media they should at least have their own YouTube page that they're constantly talking to the people but I see that he's endorsed by Roger Stone that's an interesting person to be endorsed by then Ron Paul also endorsed them which is actually that's how I started off in politics I was a big Ron Paul fan until um I, I found that guy Tom Hartman that I told you all about and um, he brought me to the left. But uh, I'm going to look more into him. And, uh, yeah, definitely check him out. Thanks for putting him on my radio. Yeah, I haven't gotten into it that much. But if if uh, you guys check him out, I'd definitely watch it. So thank you. Thanks so hey, much, Hey, before we go to the next um, caller, can I just answer your question? You talked about um, uh, if somebody goes into office and then become, become an independent. I just wanted to touch on that real quick. That um, when you had there was the third party convention that happened from Revolutionary Blackout um, recently, um, I did a workshop on how the Republican Party was formed. And that's one of the things. And that's something I was just learning myself. I was like, let me see how this was the most successful third party in, the, in America history that it became a major party. And that's one of the things that's one of the ways actually the Republican Party was formed and became a major party. It was it was the Whigs and the Democrats before the Republicans, and it was um, a mixture of the Whigs and the Democrats that they became Republicans and they were already elected. Right. So I just wanted to point that out real quick with um, that you know question that you asked uh, a while back. Yes. Thanks so much for mentioning that case. I forgot about that. But that's true. You guys, mm-hmm. the, the Republican Party was once a third party. Um, I'm going to go ahead and bring in the next caller. Greg Bruce, you're on the mic. Up, oh, I think he dropped. I don't know what happened there. Up, oh, he's back. Let me try it again. Sometimes the um the mute button's close to the exit button. Okay, you're on the mic. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I uh, pressed the wrong button. Um, but yeah, um, regarding progressives uh, needing a new strategy, you know, and I, and I know this is a very uh, common topic in the in these circles, but you know, the whole electoralism versus um, direct action and um, I just thought I'd bring up uh, 
uh, uh, a person who I just heard talked about on uh, NPR today who just passed away, Hazel Henderson. Um, and I'll admit my knowledge of, of her and what, what her work was is precursor. I just, just now learned about her. But um, in the 1960s, uh, she uh, led a uh, campaign in New York City to um, pressure city council to uh, put tighter restrictions on pollution because of the amount of pollution that was being created by garbage incinerators. Um, and she was successful in getting tighter restrictions implemented. And that's just, you know, that's an example that I, that I read about earlier. And, you know, I, I, you know, I hate to beat the dead horse. I know many have said this, but, you know, I think that that, that is really where the real change comes from. You know, the, there's that example. There's, you know, many other examples, the civil rights movement, the labor movement. And, you know, I'm someone who's, who does still believe in uh, democracy and having elections, but I think that it's the way we approach it is backwards. I think that if she had either ran for office or focused everything on getting more environmentalist uh, city council members elected, I mean, I can't imagine that she would have been as successful. Um, so, yeah, I'm just I just think it's just another example of how progressives, assuming by progressives, you don't mean progressive politicians, you mean people who believe in. Uh, progressive um, causes is that ele- the electoralism should be the afterthought of anything. It's, it's, oh yeah, well, obviously we're going to elect this person because, you know, we already campaigned for, for these environmental restrictions. We ever, and we've gotten a, a awareness of it to the point that it's almost like a third rail to be against it. So yeah, obviously we're going to elect this person, but that's, that's after everything else. So um, yeah, just uh, another uh, my thought on uh, a different strategy for people who believe in progressive causes. That's a good point. Her name was Hazel Henderson. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, we should look into we should look into that. But that's a good point. Thanks so much for calling in, Greg. No problem. Thanks. That makes me think of um, Rebecca Parsons. I think that's her name that's running. And um, I think she was on the third party. I don't know if she was on the third party summit, but, but talking about how um, she did direct action. And like, that was a big reason why um, like I would trust her. Like I'm not very interested in electoralism, but I'm interested in her campaign because of her, you know, involvement in direct action. And that seems to come first. So that's a good point. <laughs> So one question I have, and um, I'm going to start with you, Zineb. What do we do about the money, though? Because, for example, right now you have Jessica Cisneros is going against uh, Henry Quayler. I have to double check the poll for that again. But last I checked, he was in the lead. It's a very close race. But this was another one where they poured in all of this dark money to try to stop the progressives from winning, right? So this also happened with Nina Turner. We saw this happen with Summer Lee. However, Summer Lee was able to overcome it. Jessica Cineros, I think Henry declared victory, but she wants to wait until all the votes are counted. I want to hear from people, you know, callers and Zineb, I'm going to start with you since you were with Justice Democrats. What can we do about stopping big money from coming in or how do we combat that? I think, honestly, it's really about organizing and how we organize. Like I was talking about the Republicans, a lot of the Republicans that win, if you start doing the research and, you know, I worked with um, 
oh, now I'm forgetting their name. They're open secrets um, with their algorithm in 2017, where we tried to figure out where the corporate money was coming from um, for all these candidates. And one thing that we saw is people give the same money to Republicans and Democrats. And I'm seeing some of these people give the same money to these progressives, too. So the money from individuals still funnel that. So some of these progressives that don't take corporate money are still taking money from individuals that are CEOs or whatever it might be of these corporations. Um, and mentioning middle seat, you know, which Jessica Cisneros, for instance, pours a lot of money into middle seat. Um, so I don't really, I don't trust Jessica Cisneros. Um, I have been on interviews with her and I just, I don't think she's going to be any different than the rest of the squad, unfortunately. Um, but I think the way that we combat it is with sheer organizing. Um, I have seen, for instance, Charles Booker's race in 2020. We didn't raise that million dollars until like the very end of his race. And if votes hadn't been suppressed, um, against him and Amy McGrath, he would have won in 2020. He would have won that race, but they closed down the polls in Louisville and Lexington and suppressed the vote there. Um, but he, uh, I think, uh, what was her name? Um, Amy McGrath had uh, something like 72 million by the time it was all said and done, an insane amount of money. And he had a million dollars and he almost won. He did that by organizing. And because back then he ran a genuinely you know, um, populist and progressive campaign, um, which now he's kind of stirred away from a little bit, which I don't think is going to go over so well in Kentucky. I'm from Kentucky. People here are pretty damn progressive. You wouldn't think so, but they are. Um, so I think it's all in the organizing, knocking doors, getting out in the community. And a lot of times these Republicans will beat these Democrats that have a tremendous amount of money just because, like I was saying earlier, they're better at organizing. They do that mutual aid stuff. They reach out to their communities. Unfortunately, they're so much better at organizing than progressives are. And Democrats don't really care. Um, if they win or lose, I think um, they're more worried about the money and um, the backdoor money than they are about doing anything. They're the worst party, in my opinion, in certain ways, because people have a, a false sense of security with them. But, um, yeah, it's organizing, knocking doors. I have seen candidates almost win. Lots of candidates almost win, only lose by a point or less than a point and have a fraction of the money because people are behind them and because they were out there in the public, they were knocking doors, they were holding the rallies, they were doing the events. Um, you know, the advertising on TV only goes so far. So mm -hmm. it, that's the solution. The solution isn't more money, but that's what the media has told us, right? The media and the fundraisers keep telling us you can't win a campaign that's a congressional campaign unless you raise three, four, five million dollars. That's bullshit. That's only been in the last 14 years because of um, Citizens United. People didn't use campaigns didn't used to make this much damn money. This is new. This is right. new. Right. No, well said. I'm going to bring in uh, George. George, you are the next caller. Just have to unmute. But yes, well said, Zineb. That's that's very true about like the money. I think a lot of people may not realize that. Although I know Chris Hedges said he thinks the last time we actually had elections that were, I don't know if it's necessarily fair, but he said that were unbought 
was back in like the 1940s or something like that. Um, George, you just have to hit the unmute button. Yeah, while George is figuring that out, I just want to concur with uh, Zanab that we have to think differently. We we have to look at what's going on. We see how our leftists are running right now and realize, you know, from Nina Turner, we had some lead win, but for the most part, like, this is not working. And and I agree with, you know, Bernie and um, uh, forgot his old campaign managers came out and they're trying to put pressure on the Democrats to, to prevent um, dark money from being used in the primaries. But that's not enough. That's we have to just think differently. And I agree with that. We have to start from the ground, go straight to the people. And I believe that's how Summer Lee won. She, I think she was a community organizer and she was really well known. While Nina, she even though she was the state senator, she has been away from the um, at, at least from what I understand. I could be wrong. I'm not on the ground in Ohio, but she probably she became a teacher for a while. She was away with Bernie's campaign. So maybe that disconnect was there. But Summer Lee was constantly in the community, and maybe that's how she – and she was supposed to be ahead by 30 points also. So with the dark money, it, she overcame all of that, and she barely won by a couple points, but I'll give the mic back. Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you so much for mentioning that case because I had one person call in in Nina's district and said – I asked how was the ground game, and they said her ground game was good. Um, but the ads were a big issue, I guess, for Nina. I guess there were giant billboards as well. But then I had another person call in that said they were in Nina's district and they said her ground game wasn't good. So, you know, I'm not there. I don't know for sure myself. But um, one thing that was very clear to me is that multiple people told me they felt like when it came to being involved in the community, that Chantel Brown was always there. So, I mean, we do have to take into consideration, like Nina mm. was a part of Bernie's campaign, too. So she was traveling a lot as well. Yeah. Um, George, can you hit unmute or I'll go to the I'll go ahead and go to the next caller. OK, maybe we'll try try back next time. Um, Carolina, you are next. Can you all hear me? Yes. OK, cool. So, um I'm I'm just going to go ahead and say off the back, you know, I'm uh, a little bit more of a pessimist, especially in these days and like the, the recent news cycles. I'm not, I'm not like a total anti-electoralism leftist. I still vote whenever I can, whenever there's a candidate that I see that's uh, well-intentioned that I think, you know, their platform could bring about actual change. But, um, you know, when, when, when I was growing up, we always said, if you don't got something nice to say, don't say nothing at all. And then once you become an adult, you're all everybody is just brutally honest about the situation. And I'm just seeing the amount of energy and effort we put in over the years working on bringing the progressive, the squads to Congress and how badly they have utterly failed us on even the most basic, simplest things. I just have very little faith at this point that trying to come up with new strategies on electoralism is to work. I'm not trying to discourage people from trying to figure out those strategies, but I am trying to say, I think it's important for us to try. Oh, you're breaking up a bit. Sorry. Can can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, I think it's important for us to try to put some of our eggs in some different baskets because I genuinely believe what Chomsky said recently that we are approaching a very dangerous dark time in this country. Okay. We are seeing insane amounts of violence going on right now. These fascists are coming out here. They are targeting marginalized people in our community. We've seen it over and over again, not just what happened last week in Buffalo. We've seen, uh, there was a few months ago, a fascist out in Denver that was 
uh, out on a rampage killing people. We saw Dylan Roof. We saw the dude in El Paso. We've seen multiple times. And even when kids in a school, like we saw the other day, are getting killed and the cops won't do anything to save them or nothing like mm-hmm. that, and we know that there's no laws that are going to change, I don't believe that we're going to be able to get some electoralism to get anything that's going to substantially try to help working people in our movement. So what I'm saying is I think we need a broad coalition to revamp an anti-fascist movement that we need to protect our most marginalized, vulnerable uh, communities and people uh, at this time. Uh, I think we are really approaching a point where the key thing that we need to focus on is protecting our communities and survival. I mean, this thing is really getting insane. I just do not see at this point us to expect any sort of substance change come to the near future. Okay, these fascists are at war with us and at war with our people, and we need to protect ourselves and protect our community. So that's what I think. That was a good point, uh, Carolina Boy, and I'm going to pass this over to um, uh, Courtney and Keisha next. Um, Thank you for bringing up the importance of marginalized communities as well, because one of the things that we've noticed on the left and the reason why, like myself and the rest of us at RBN decided to enter this space is because we noticed that a lot of the, the issues per se, a lot of the conversation and the focus on the left was centered around white supremacy. It was centered around whiteness. And that was mainly because there weren't as many black people in this space. So that's why we're here to fill that void and to also discuss some of those issues that you may not hear discussed on some of the larger platforms. But you're right. Like we need to have that same type of energy and focus to help people in these communities, whether it's your community or not. What we saw happen in Texas, that should have never happened. But it is very clear to me in this country that people really just don't care anymore. Like the fact that people were able to just dismiss it and say, oh, there was just another school shooting. We shouldn't get to that point where we're that comfortable in this country that we have like mass shootings. And I want to go ahead and pass it to uh, Courtney and Keisha to get their take on that as well. And if if I could just make one really quick point uh, before that, you know, I, I just will say I've seen a lot of energy like in the left trying to work on getting convincing a lot of working class conservatives, especially like areas where I live to like join our, our broader class movement and coalition. And I just want to say I, I see a lot of that as being a lot of waste of energy and time because they have been really brainwashed by this culture war by people like Carlson and stuff so far to where their litmus test is the culture war. They don't care about class issues anymore. They see Joe Biden as equivalent to Louis Farrakhan. Okay. We're, we're not going to like work on bringing them into our coalition. We need to bring apolitical people that are not involved, working class people that don't really have opinions, focus on them and help, you know, find people that will, that are not rotten, rotted by these cultural issues that will help us protect uh, our marginalized community. So yeah, I just wanted to make that last point. Thank you. Good point. Uh, Courtney and Keisha. Wow. Thanks, Carolina. Boy, those are some really good points. Um, I mean, I mean, that's that's honestly that's great advice. I mean, if you have firsthand knowledge that it's wasted energy, then, you know, I think it would be um, I mean, you know, my boyfriend himself, he, he doesn't even feel like voting. You know, he's just not interested. He thinks it's a waste of time and a waste of energy. So I think there is maybe some room there to work on getting people together um, who are apolitical. And I also, um, I mean, I just wanted to go back to the, um, to the fundraiser thing just really quickly and just say, I mean, I think we have to kind of amend what we, what we consider to be, um, currency. Like, you know, there, 
I guess there are other ways. I mean, we can't discredit someone because they haven't raised $3 million, you know, and they still are, you know, working for the cause and doing something good. We have to adjust within ourselves. Like politics is not about celebrity. And a lot of times, you know, maybe the best person for us is a poor person who's not earning money. So, you know, being out in the streets, doing mutual aid, um, you know, spending their money wisely somewhere that we can see where it goes to, I think would really help us to gain some strength and some, some support from people who are just completely apathetic. Um, and I would say, I mean, a Carolina boy was touching on this too with direct action. And, and I think a lot of our energy should be put there. And I like, I mean, for, for example, for us going camping, um, I know it might sound like such a nothing kind of event or a waste of time or something, but when we've got people on the left and as Savvy was pointing out, you know, I mean, so many of the thought, thought leaders, quote unquote, with the people who started before us, I guess, and have more followers, um, they do have a very white centric viewpoint and they don't really, um, the, the biggest frustration I'm having with them is that they don't seem to want to reach across the aisle in terms of the left sphere and work with the more working class people. And they don't, they don't even see that they're kind of sectoring themselves off. But like with the, the direct action of going camping, even organizing this, we have already met so many other lefties that um, have skills that will help uh, other uh, that will help us. You know, people who are trying to start unions in their own workplaces, people who know about online cybersecurity, and these are these are things that we've got to basically crowdsource because we don't have money like right. the Republicans. You know, and the way yeah. to do that is start getting together and actually meeting each other, and that's why something like that is so important. And they want us apart. And I think a big thing about lefties too is. I think a lot of us are isolated. I mean, a lot of people we've been talking to just that wanted to go camping, at least a lot of people they had this energy from Bernie. They felt a part of something from that. Then, you know, you had COVID hit. And of course, I think more leftist people were probably staying inside, uh, you know, rightfully so. But I think you've got a lot of people that are also isolated and have become apathetic because of what they've seen. And I wonder if we can get those people back. And I think doing fun events, you know, no, like kind of lower pressure events, um, cause I personally don't like being like invited to stuff where there's like an expectation of a donation. Like I don't have any money. I have none. So, you know, but if it's something where it's like, we're going to get to know each other or just come meet some people who, who have beliefs like you, that a lot of lefties don't really even have that. And so if we can start moving some of like the spaces that we're having and the things that we're having offline too, that's going to be our strength because we've got to start, you know, working together, especially as Carolina boy was saying, everything is deteriorating very quickly. And so having these actual people who like know how to garden in their apartments, mm -hmm. people who know first aid and, you know, these are skills that we can really share. And I think we've got to, got to do it. Yeah. And it doesn't cost us any money to, to share skills. Right. No, that's a good point. And I want to give an example, a more recent example to echo something that uh, Courtney just said. A lot of times when on the left, when it comes to issues for marginalized communities, those issues are pushed to the bottom of the list. So if we want to talk about a list of demands or policies that we want, our issues are usually pushed to the bottom. That's why you don't hear many people talking about reparations. They don't want to do it. They say it's divisive. They don't want to do anything that is going to benefit people of color in this country that doesn't include white people. And that's a problem. And this is something I want people to know, all of you listening, when Bernie was running, that was the most difficult part of this this movement that I had 
difficulty with, I guess, so to say, is trying to convince particularly black voters that they should vote for Bernie Sanders. And the reason why a lot of them did not want to is because they felt like when it came to those those particular issues, it didn't seem important. It was pushed to the bottom of the list when it came to the progressives. So they opted to vote for crime bill Joe just because he was friends with Obama. So this, this is something I think that needs to be resolved. It needs to be discussed. We could have a whole separate discussion about this, but it is a topic that it's been a problem. And that is why a lot of us uh, that are in this space now are in this space. Uh, yeah, I want to go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Courtney. Just one sec too. I'm, I'm seeing that more and more to come up with the audiences now of some of these lefties. And so I think that that's, becomes an issue where we've got black people on the left who are saying, hey, this is something that's really important or, hey, you are somebody that I listen to, but you've got some of these blind spots. And not only does the the person ignore it, but then the audience will make excuses for that. And so, you know, I think we've got to check each other online, too, and say, encourage people to say, hey, maybe there's something here. Maybe they're not just trying to be a hater. Maybe we, you know, actually do have some blind spots. And I, I do notice it's really difficult to explain that to um, to white leftists that that there there are hosts with blind spots, and we do need more support. Right, and I'll give a recent example, and then I'm going to um, take uh, Owen as a caller. I'll give a recent example with John Fetterman. I think we need to stop praising John Fetterman, and I pointed this out on my show as well. The fact that there are some leftists in this space that want us to ignore the fact that John Fetterman chased down a black jogger with a shotgun and told us to just get over it, that we should vote for him anyway, or we should support him anyway. That goes to tell you that says to black people in this space that our concerns and our safeties and our needs and our wants about black people don't make the cut. It doesn't make the list. And that's a problem. Owen, I'll go ahead and take you next. You just got to unmute. Sure thing. Thank you for taking my call, Sabby, and everyone else on the panel today. How are you today before I get into what I was going to talk about? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing good. Um, before I got into my main point, I just wanted to say um, the institutions within a country like America that has monopolized multicultural labor exploitation can only change its complexion but cannot change its structure. And I just, anytime I'm organizing, I always make sure to remind people of that and teach people of that as well. And um, listening to your conversation just about Miss Dulcimer, and uh, I also saw her on Brianna Joy Gray's show as well. Uh, they talked a lot about the their morality was the thing that they're not willing to sacrifice if they were elected. And uh, a large majority of modern leftist politicians refer to or mention their morality when it comes to sacrifices that they're not willing to make or go against if elected, as if their morality has some monetary value. But in our materialist reality, politicians continue to ask constituents to make monetary sacrifices by contributing pieces of their paychecks to political campaigns, even though the monetary value of a politician's morality is not at all equal to an hour of a voter's, of a, a constituent's minimum wage labor. 
uh, with a progressive candidate like Shama Sawant sacrificing a good portion of her paycheck to mutual aid and different community investments, how can a politician expect a voter to donate to a campaign if that candidate is unwilling to make any monetary sacrifices in favor of their constituents? Oh, oh, and that is such a good question. Uh, I think, you know, when it comes to Shama Sawant, for example, any candidate that is running, every progressive candidate running right now for Congress or Senate, they need to look at what Shama Sawant is doing because that's hard to compete with. How many of them would be willing to sacrifice part of their salary and donate part of their salary to organizations in their community or start their own organization, which is probably better, to help out people in their community? Because people need to see that you're willing to give them something because the voters give you their money when they donate to you. They give you their time if they canvass for you. They also give you their time if they're standing in line to vote for you. And some places it's like 10 hours depending on where you live. So that's the competition. And every single one of them, I think, who are going on to people's shows saying, well, this is nihilistic. It's nihilistic thinking if you don't want to support us, I think instead of going on the defensive towards the voters, I think it may be best to take a step back and do a little bit of self-reflection and think about what Shama Sawant is doing, how she's actually helping people in the community and didn't make it about her. I think it's important for them to do that because one thing I do want to add for people listening for all the progressive candidates that are doing this like podcast tour thing that's happening that are getting on there telling people you can't give up. If you don't vote, then you're just being nihilistic. I got news for them. That doesn't make people want to go out and vote for you. That doesn't change people's minds. (laughs) Like, I'm sorry, but blaming the voters is not the solution. So I think you have a point, Owen, like looking at something like what Shama Sawant is doing, because I don't see anybody else doing that. Uh, Case, I want to bring you in. Yes. Oh, man. Shama is so different. You know, that's the model that I would love to see upcoming candidates, upcoming leftists use. And, you know, how do you tell somebody, hey, it's uh, you have to give up a certain portion. Like, I rather I, I would like to at least ask them, like, hey, what do you think? about giving up your um a certain amount of your salary and if you do how much would you give and to me that's me almost testing them to see how much for the people you are you know um Sharma she literally takes the minimum wage which I think is like maybe around 40,000 or whatever and I think it's a six-figure salary that um I could be wrong that she makes as a Seattle councilwoman and she, because she gives a large portion of her salary back to socialist alternative, they were able to donate money to, um, to the Amazon union, Amazon labor union when they won. Um, and she went out there to help support them. I think she gave, I don't want I'm not even going to throw out a number because I might be wrong, but she was, they were able to donate money. Right. And that's what this is all about. Mutual aid and, and helping each other out. So, man, Kashama is so such a different type of politician that she can't be matched. It's just unfortunate that um, she can't run for higher office because she wasn't born in, uh, in America. But I definitely um, look look to her as a model that we want to uh, duplicate. 
Agreed. Um, Zineb, I want to bring you in in reference to uh, Shama Sawant and also looking at like local elections, because I'm wondering like if some of these, some of the members of the squad, right, with the exception of Ayanna Presley, because Ayanna Presley was my city councilor here in Boston. So she had political experience. But when I look at some of the the politicians that were a part of the squad, would it have been better if they would have ran for local positions? And do you think they would have been more effective doing that instead? That's a great question. Um, I think that you you can see some of the impacts Sama Shawant has already made um, in her community. You also see people like, and why am I blanking on his name now? He ran for DA in um, San Francisco, for instance, and he stopped the um, he stopped he was the first to suspend the bell bond system. Right. And he ran as DA in a local local city office. And that made, you know, national news. Also, a lot of what we see coming down the pike when it comes to um, our rights to, uh, you know, safe abortions, um, rights to abortion, when we see um, state funds and, and tax dollars and how they spend this federal money that comes from, you know, Congress or from from our state taxes. A lot of that has to do with local politics and state politics. You know, people are always talking about the billionaires and the millionaires. They're right about that. They're right about the billionaires. But in local communities like where I'm from, there are still people that pull the strings and have control over everything here. They're still wealthy. They still live in in big mansions and big houses and they run everything. And it's, you know, we all know who those family names are in our communities, right? Um, no, it's not the head of Amazon, but these are still people that are running things. And so if you run for office locally, you can shake that up, especially in the state houses, because when I was covering, I used to cover, um, state house electoral politics and I would watch, um, when I was a journalist and I would watch legislation come across that was still literally stamped by Alec, you know, written by these big corporations and they would strategize it to get it through the state houses because it was easier. And we've seen state houses shift um, where I was talking about that local organizing that the right wing does. They've they've taken that power because they know that if they get power in local seats and local state houses, they can get a lot more done than Congress can do. And that's where we see rights getting chipped away is at the state house level, not at the federal and so I think that people could make more of an impact and you could do a lot more and you could do mutual aid and you could run cheaper campaigns and win and have more impact. If there was a third party, for instance, I think, you know, if I was running third party candidates, I would say go for the local, go for the state house seats that you can actually get on the ballot in and try mm-hmm. to get through and be that wedge you know, where you might be 10 people or 20 people in a state house and those elections would be easier, but they would have to come to you to get anything passed. And that would be powerful. Yeah, I want to give an example of actually someone locally here who is a part of DSA and canvas for Bernie Sanders. And that's Erica Eiderhoven. So I interviewed her over a year ago. She's in the state house. She won and she's in the state house here in Massachusetts. She's been able to do a lot more locally than she would if she would have went into Congress. Uh, Same thing with Ayanna Presley. The reason why I voted for her was not because, not just because she had progressive policies, but because she actually was able to get things done. She actually fought and she was a fighter here. Now, I don't see that with her in Congress, but again, that's what I'm saying. I feel like 
some of these politicians would have been more effective if they would have stayed on the local level. Uh, I want to go back to Owen. Owen, does that answer your question? Um, I, I do believe so. And I also thank you all for answering. And uh, before I uh, got off, I just wanted to say uh, mutual aid is not only a metaphorical cast that can heal an economically broken community, but can also be a weapon of the proletariat to be used against capital. And I do believe personally myself, that is the reason why these candidates do not donate parts of their salary back to the community, because the capital that invests in their uh, uh, campaigns will be affected if that happens. So thank you so much for answering. Well said, Owen. Thanks so much for calling in. All right, I'm going to take the next caller, and that is Anthony. Welcome back, Anthony. Oh, thank you so much. This is you're just right on the money with this conversation. My gosh, thank you. And now, uh, Anthony, you're in Detroit, so you're near. Um, I know you've tried to speak to Rashida Tlaib before. Oh, I've spoken to her many times. She told me don't vote for her when I said, hey, why are you stealing Afghanistan's money in the America Competes Act? And you voted for a little Jayapal Amendment, which seemed to, you know, be like, oh, we shouldn't steal their money. But if you look at it, it actually tried to make a devil's deal between their central bank money and China's Belt and Road investments in Afghanistan. So I confronted her, said, why are you stealing Afghanistan's money? She said, don't vote for me. I've confronted her on Julian Assange. She probably threw the papers away. Confronted her on the Ukraine war uh, three days before she voted for $40 billion, all in person. So, yeah, these people, I mean, they have no integrity. Like I, I said before, they're surrounded by DSA ass kissers, really. Comes down to it. Oh, man. Is she in a safe district? Oh, well, I mean, I mean, yeah, it's all new districts across the whole country this year, but... Yeah, I'd say she's probably going to win the primary and obviously the general election. It's a Democratic district. But, you know, it was funny when I was watching the Amy Villela interview and I honestly don't know about her. And I noticed how you picked out the question. Bree said, would you have voted for the Ukraine 40 billion? And she couldn't answer it or, you know, she didn't just directly answer it. And, you know, a question that was like nagging on my mind the whole time is like just, uh, basically the national security state to put it broadly or, you know, the three letter alphabet soup agencies. And, you know, uh, people want to talk about Trump's authoritarianism and he definitely, he was, he played into it, but they wanted to make it about his interpersonal, you know, celebrity authoritarianism. Whereas, you know, it's really about the permanent state that stays in place when politicians come and go. And it's like, I'd seem like that question didn't come up or, even if it did, and I don't think Amy or squad members have an answer for that. Yeah, I mean, Amy, you know, I'm familiar with her before because she ran in 2018 with um, AOC and Rashida Tlaib and Paula Jean Swearage, and she's on the documentary Knocking Down the House. I'm familiar with the story about her daughter, and I am empathetic to that. Uh, it's a terrible healthcare system that we have in this country. But what was kind of concerning to me watching that interview, it just seemed like I did not get the impression from Amy that she was actually going to fight. I didn't get like that same fiery energy that she had back when she ran in 2018. And some of the questions that Brie asked her were simple, like yes or no questions. And she wouldn't give a yes or no. So for me, it's just like, 
you know, you can't give us word salad, like, right? Like we've heard this all before. You can't say to voters, well, yes, it's frustrating about the squad, but I have experience talking to businesses. Like we don't care. Like, I don't care that you have experiences talking to businesses. In fact, that makes me question some things that you're talking so much to businesses. I care if you're going to actually fight for the people that you said that you would fight for on the policies that you said you would fight for. And that's the thing. And I think it's really easy to say what you're going to do when you're not in. But then once you get in, I think the the powers at B make it so that you have one or two options. You either go along with the Democratic Party and you get to keep your seat or you fight against the Democratic Party and they smear you and they primary someone against you. And that's what they've threatened to do to people like Cori Bush. So you have like her office in D.C. They're not even allowed to speak. That That's the message coming out of D.C. that Cori Bush's office is not allowed to speak to people because she was still for defunding the police. And Nancy Pelosi said that's not the direction the Democratic Party is going in. So if you can't be your full self. Right. So one of the things we used to tell the students when you get a job, you should be able to bring your full self to work. If you can't be your full self and bring your full self there, then that means you have to be someone else. And if it's gotten to that point where you have to be someone else, I would much rather see someone like Cori Bush leave Congress and go back into activism. Because that's another thing too. And I'm going to bring in um, case study QB here. That's another thing. Like what happened to the activism, the fighting on the outside? Yeah, so I watched your Cynthia McKinney um, interview, excellent interview, and I love hearing from Cynthia. Matter of fact, I, will, I, I hope she can do that like once a month with you. That would be awesome because she she's one of the few people that was on the inside as a Democrat that can let us know, OK, this is what's happening. This is what they're doing, because what what made me think of her was um, when she said she uh, talked to um, not not Barbara Lee. There was somebody else in Congress that she talked to, and that person said, oh, we do whatever leadership tells us to do. We vote with leadership. Maxine. Maxine Waters. Yes, yes, yes. So um, that's exactly what you just said with Cori Bush, where she was for defund the police, and they probably put the kibosh on that and and, um, tried to shut her up. But this, the other point I want to make is that even though they – are trying to get along, go along to get along. Cori Bush has, from what I understand, a, a, a serious challenge. AOC, last time she ran, she had a serious challenge. Um, a Ayanna, um, not Ayanna Presley, um, a, um, Ilyan Omar, I believe, had a, a serious challenge. So they're still, they're going to still try to come after them, whether they um, go along with them or not, whether they work with them or not. The, the establishment is going to try to knock them out regardless as we see with the New York redistricting that Sabrina, you covered recently of how um, Mondale Jones. Now he, um, he was going to run in his original district, but now um, the, the D triple C chairman forced him out and now he has to run against mayor de Blasio. So they're doing their buffoonery um, behind the scenes regardless. So you might as well be with the people and and fight for the people as hard as you can because they're going to come after you regardless. Well said. Uh, Zineb, I want to get your take on this too. Um, I was a little shocked. You know, Paula Jean and I, Paula Jean Sferenson and I, we went to the Medicare for All 
rally. We had tweeted about it and we sent it in a little group that I was in with like Nina Turner and Amy Valella and, and Paula that we were going up there and Corey showed up. Right. And I saw her and she cried and she said, I'm still me. Um, and just to give some background, I, I did comms with Corey for four years. I know her very well. And, you know, I saw her when we were doing Occupy Congress on the steps of of the, uh, you know, the steps of the Capitol building. I was up there and it was so strange because I sat down beside her and she gave me political speak. And I was kind of blown away. I'm like, girl, I know you like, you know, I have I was the first person to write your bio like I I knew you, you know, 2017 when she first launched. I helped get her first campaign launched and I was just uh, kind of in shock, you know, and I, I saw handlers. I saw people around her that was like steering her in one direction or another. She used to be fierce. She said whatever the hell she thought. She was a badass activist. I, you know, she's gotten mace sprayed in her face and she was on the ground, you know, um, doing activism for Black Lives Matter and for, you know, um, Black women empowerment and other things. So to me, you know, the takeaway was Corey was one I knew what AOC was going to do when she got up there. I wasn't even happy when she won because I knew it. But with Corey, I thought it might be different. But then I saw it wasn't. So I don't know what to really do about that. I mean, you know, it really changed me as a person and an individual um, because I was like, wow, you know, if they can get to Corey Bush, they can get to anybody. And it's been disappointing to see. But um, I think for us, though, as individuals, where that comes down to is we don't need heroes. We need to stop. We after the Bernie boom, we started getting more interested in politics being the thing that's going to save us. You know, one hero, a Bernie or AOC, because that's easy. Right. It's easy to find one person and be like, this person's going to save our save us. This person's going to solve all of our problems. But at the end of the day, it's going to take us organizing on the ground in our own communities, you know, running for local elections, changing the state houses. I'll give one quick example and then I'll, I'll be done here. But in Kentucky in the 1980s, they had the most women and the most people of color elected to any state house. They held that for like 17 years. And there was a caucus called the Bitch Caucus, and it was led by black women. And they called them the Bitch Caucus derogatorily. And the women started wearing big buttons um, that said the Bitch Caucus. <laughs> and they wrote the um, they wrote the Violence Against Women's Act. That was the first state to ever pass it. And they got funding in for to help women get out of domestic violence situations. But they did that locally at the state level, doing mutual aid, doing local work, knocking doors, raising money. And then it went all the way up to the federal level. But that was from grassroots up, right? Not from them down. I think it's going to take us from the grassroots us up and not having a hero down, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, if I could just say, as it relates to uh, elections, you know, for the candidates, they're got to realize they're stepping into the big leagues and there's a lot of technicalities and parliamentary, you know, procedure and ancient stuff you got to learn. And that basically you got to have some integrity when you get in there. But for uh, lower, I wouldn't say lower people, just the common person, quote unquote organizers, you know, we just have to have a process of elimination. And I'll just say if they have a D next to their name, that D stands for discernment and you can discern. You do not need to support them very quickly and easily. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much, Anthony. I'm going to go ahead and bring in the next caller and that's uh, free Assange. A uh, quick question I want to ask as well um, before you speak real quick, Assange. 
we've heard this idea of bringing or adding more numbers to Congress, right? Like bringing in more progressives. Now I talked about this last night because what I see is one of two things either happening for one, I think people have to get the mentality out of their head that the squad is going to be a part of that number. They are now with the corporate Democrats. They're voting with the corporate Democrats. And I really do not believe that they're all of a sudden going to switch what they've been doing and start to fight with new progressives that are coming in. And the reason why I say that is because look at what just happened with Nina Turner. They were threatened not to support her, not to endorse her, and they caved. They gave into that. So imagine what kind of threats they're going to get if they decide to vote along or to fight with new progressives going in. So that's one part of it. The other part is new progressives coming in are going to have two options. They're either going to go along with the corporate Democrats in reverence for voting for legislation because that's going to be the easier path for them, right? Or they're going to do what they're supposed to do, which is stand up and fight and push back against the corporate Democrats. And if that happens, like Cynthia McKinney said, they're going to do everything that they can, threaten them, smear them, anything that they can to push them out of the party. So the idea that adding more progressives into Congress is going to increase the numbers and it's going to be more people, technically no, because the squad that's already there is not going to be a part of that group. They're already with the corporate Democrats, and I don't see them switching the tables on that. Uh, Free Assange. You want to go ahead and unmute? Hello, this is my uh, first time using the call-in app. Long-time listener to the Sabi Sab show, uh, first-time caller. Um, fan of uh, RBN, so I have heard of Courtney, and I believe I've seen uh, Zenab, sorry if I mispronounced her name, before somewhere in Progressive doing something, probably the Bernie campaign back in 2016. And uh, case study QB, I have a, uh, for you, I like how you bring in uh, context and uh and facts don't always agree on your takes but i like that you're you put your your takes out there you know i think i feel like too much of us we hold it back because we're scared to be criticized and got to put it more out there that's just wanted to say that intro hopefully i'm coming through clearly and um as far as people going to the democratic party man we know this by now and progressives They've been saying progressive since the 1920s, you know, mm-hmm. Woodrow Wilson, you know, and, you know, I'll, I'll introduce myself a little bit uh, if I don't take too much time. I used to be, you know, all into America, like we're, you know, number one. And I used to look up to uh, Woodrow Wilson, the 14 points, you know, League of Nations. Like, yeah, you know, like. In the old world, we did things more savagely, but in the new world, we can be civilly. And, you know, all that was just a whole bunch of boo-boo. You know, this is, we're even more savage probably now than we were back then. And we were still savage back then. So my point is, I, I still think we should vote, even though I'm against electoralism. I still think we should vote because I think not voting serves the agenda more than more than we think it does, because really, when you're not when you don't vote, what you're saying is I give up. Sure. You know, all the politicians are corrupt. This is this is facts. And even, and let's say let's not even say all the politicians are corrupt. Let's say maybe they have good intentions. But then when they get in, 
they become more and more compromised, you know. So let's let's give them all the benefits of the doubt. And look look what the uh, results are. We got war all the time. We got poison in our environment, not just the wildlife, but in our cities. So I think, well, back to the what's my point? My point is, I think we got to unplug. I think we got to get out of this system and form our own society. Now, I know it sounds crazy, but this is how they resisted authoritarian regimes in the past. You start trading amongst yourselves. You start making your own soap, your own clothes, your own media. And, you know, we still have people still got to go to work. I'm not saying you have to completely just commit suicide, but I'm just saying do as as little as you do as, as much as you have to to keep the system from just crushing you. But then all the rest of your life, we I think we should commit to building a new society that's holistic, that's healthy. And that's willing to change because we're not always going to be right the first time. So we have to constantly be changing in, in like improv, like an improv society. But where we, we bring logic, culture, sense and all of the things we've learned in the past to create something that's more fair and more honest and just decent. That, that's that's where I'm coming from. Good points, uh, Free Assange. I want to go to uh, Courtney and Keisha and get your take on that. I mean, yeah, I think you're definitely right about that. We can't rely on being within this system. And um, kind of to touch on what what everybody was kind of talking about just a little bit ago, too. Like, I worked at a place. Um, I was a waitress at a place, a kind of swanky place. And Emily's List would have um, meetings there. Emily's List is like a... Um, liberal it's like the it's like the democrat version of the Confe- uh, daughters of the confederacy <laughs> yeah kind of yeah they're very liberal there's they they try to support pro uh choice candidates that's as liberal as it gets and then um but they actually were having a meeting and this was in like a swanky like um members only women's club right and i was making coffees and e- eavesdropping but they were very like open about <laughs> they were like um we need to make sure we stop these aocs and these progressives and and they were concerned about that and that was a few years ago and i i imagine that that's been maintaining the conversation and so like i just feel like i want to point out that the Democrats, um, the older Democrats, they definitely see us as the enemy. And I think that I think we, we will have to see them that way. And when we see them that way, it'll be easier for us to kind of work outside of that system and form our own communities. Um, but I do think that we should understand that they're very hostile towards our needs. And so maybe we might have to start being just way more hostile. <laughs> Mm, good point. Uh, thank you so much for calling in Free Assange. I'm going to take the next caller, which is Amanda, and I'm going to wrap up here in uh, just a second. We'll do a quick summary and then we'll wrap up. All right, Amanda, you're on the mic. You just got to unmute. Hi, how are you guys doing today? I appreciate the conversation. Um, doing can you great. Hear me okay? Thanks so much for calling in. Yes, we can hear you. Great. So, a couple of thoughts occurred to me as the discussion was going on. And a um, little bit about me is I served as a local elected official for eight years and was elected twice in my small community. And and it felt like being demoted, not just from, you know, activist, but from citizen, because the interest of the whole community became 
you know, was then was put on my shoulders with four other people. And, and so you have to kind of make different calculations. I won't defend any of the progressives or the squad or whatever you want to call them or anybody in Congress for that matter. Cause they, with that many people, so what if three people vote against it? You should vote against it. You know, if you're afraid to not vote against it because you're going to lose campaign money or you're going to get primaried, then you're not voting how your constituents want you to vote, I don't think. No, that's a good point, Amanda. And I, But I think the problem is, and um, Case can talk more about this as well, AOC, I think, is one of those people that her district for her, I think, is pretty safe. Uh, Case, can you comment on that real quick? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a deep blue district. Correct. But um, the way they try to take her out is in the primary, right? So once she wins the primary, then that's it. They can't kick her out. But they, they um, last time they ran somebody that was a conservative. Matter of fact, I think she was a Republican before she switched over to Democrat, I believe. I believe. I could be wrong. Uh, it was the two two cycles ago, I believe it was. And they really put a lot of money, a lot of Wall Street money went behind this other person. I think she tried to even have like an initial with her name. I can't remember it exactly. Like, you know how we have AOC? She had like, I think it was MT something. But um, yeah, they tried to kick her out in the primary. Mm, well said. And you were talking... And you were talking about, um, I think Cori Bush was a local elected for you. Is that, is that what I, did I hear that right? Before um, she was Presley. in Congress? Ayanna Presley, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Ayanna Presley. So, so this is the other big difference. I don't know about in, in your state, but in California, local elections are not partisan. So you actually don't run as part of a party. So it's a, it's a completely different. You have to learn a different way of doing things at the local level. State is more similar structurally, I think, to federal. But there's so much going on with 435 other people. You know, it's it, to get something accomplished in two years, just to learn the hallways and where's everybody the office is. You're going to hire staffers that are the same staffers that have been there for years and years and years. And so... If, you know, you can't get them onto your policy train, they're going to stay on the policy train they were already on. Right. Those are those are good points. Yeah, I think it's it's, you know, one thing I can say with the local level, I have a better chance of if I want to hold politicians accountable, I have a better chance of pressing someone like Mayor Michelle Wu, which I did recently, actually. Mm -hmm. I have a better chance of if I have a complaint about something. I have a better chance of going to their office and other people have done this too recently because she's made some horrible policy decisions here, but I have a better chance of actually meeting them face to face and asking them the tough questions. Whereas the politicians that go to DC, unless you give them the type of interview that they want and you're not going to press them with the exception of Rokana, Rokana tends to let people uh, punch him for whatever reason, like like punch him virtually, Mm -hmm. not like um, physically, (laughs) but the, the other ones, they will not come on. You don't even see like maybe TYT, but when you think about left media that gave them platforms, AOC, I first saw her on Jimmy Dore show. 
So had mm-hmm. it not been for her on Jimmy Dore, I probably would have never known who she was until after she won. So a lot of them gave those squad members a platform. And then once they won, you never see them go back on independent media unless it's TYT. And even with TYT, some of them won't go on. So that's the difference, guys. I think I really want us to focus more on local, what we can do on the local level. And yes, we all live in different states. But in terms of holding politicians accountable, I think you have a better chance of doing that when they're local versus when they go to D.C. If I, I 100% agree with that and just wanted to drop one other idea, which is um, maybe we could have like a, a fantasy Congress, like the way people play fantasy sports, because then people could get an idea for the kinds of things that are going on, you know, and, and everybody's got stats and all. I mean, there's 400 players. I mean, it could be a good way to kind of learn about what's going on in a fun way. Just a thought. That's actually a, a fun idea, Amanda. I, I I have a fantasy football league, so I'm very familiar with fantasy sports. But I never thought about that. That's a good idea. Yeah, that sounds like fun. I would I would want um, Cornell West to be my district person representative. <laughs> oh man, I want him. <laughs> Thank you so much, all of you, for having the show on Colin. I really the interactive conversations that happen here are spectacular and so thank you have a great afternoon thank you for calling in amanda okay before we go i do want to do a quick summary for everyone in terms of other ideas new strategies so case i'm going to start with you can you repeat uh your strategy that you had yeah so definitely i'm I'm still fleshing out the idea have um, someone that I'm working on the back end. And then what I plan to do, similar to what I did with the People's Gauntlet before I went um, and, and fully developed it, I, I want to go to Sabi Sab Show. I want to go to uh, Status Quo. I want to go to all the left media that I've built a relationship. Even Courtney, I would love to go on, on your guys' show. Once this um, idea, I want to do a fact-finding mission when I where I would get, I would love to get feedback. Because, you know, even though I initiated the idea, I don't see this as, oh, this is my idea. I don't have an ego in that way. I want this to be the people's idea. So we, for it to be the people's idea, I, I want to get feedback from everybody. And basically, it's the... um. The, the mutual aid political party, you know, I put political in there so that people who are in the, the main goal is to get people who are not political. So I didn't want them to think, oh, is there a, re- a party like a real like a club or something? I wanted to put political intentionally in there so they know that this this is the the ends means that we want to um, affect electoral change. But through mutual aid and I, I, I would call it a mutual aid first. Right. So that means that um, the, the electoral side of it is secondary while the idea is to help people at its core. And, and that without going to a whole another 10 minutes of it, that's the basic core of the idea. And as as it becomes more developed, I look forward to um, having more feedback from everybody. Awesome. Thank you, Case. Uh, Courtney. Well, Courtney. And hey, hey. You want to go ahead and summarize your idea again about direct action? Yeah, I mean, our 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 plan is definitely to focus on direct action. But um, I love and I love what we were talking about, like smaller events as well earlier. So we're actually we would love to talk to you, Case. Of course, we would love that. Um, you know, we um, I think we're really good connectors, and I think it's good for people to like find different skills that need to be filled. And so for us, you know. 
Um, we try to go to a lot of like actions in person, um, but we're also trying to like travel around a little bit so we can um, meet some other lefties in person. And so we're, we're organizing this camping trip, which is really exciting and important to us. And we're hoping to work with um, CJ and a couple of other lefties on the West Coast and hopefully get something going over there, too. Um, you know, so we can actually have some movement. And um, I think that the movement that, uh, that was lost with Bernie, um, you know, I think that those people and that energy is still there. And, you know, I think that's something we're going to be working on is bringing people together. But hey, you know, this movement, that's, that's what we're going to need to support something like a mutual aid political party. So, you know, right. it's all hand in hand. <laughs> Yeah, let's let's just um, share as many skills and volunteer as many skills as you can because we don't have money to volunteer necessarily. But you know, the more we can um, help each other out, the more we can build it and keep make ourselves look you know more put together and more professional and more sellable to like a mainstream audience. I guess. Yeah, somebody who's not as political. Like, that. yeah, there's normal people out there. I guess. <laughs> Great discussion, awesome. though. Like, Sad. thanks. Awesome. Okay, Zineb, do you want to do a quick summary of what you were saying about the money? Just really quickly, like what people need to be aware of? Yeah, um, I think we can't wait. You know, electoralism, every cycle, they keep telling us, um, give us money, we'll do it next cycle, right? Give us money, we'll do it next cycle. And then they get into office and they don't do anything. So run locally, give to, don't give to endorsing agencies, you know, be careful the candidates that you give to, you know, try to give to third party candidates or independent Think outside of the box um, when we keep bringing up issues because we know strongly worded letters, um, you know, marches, phone calls to these people's offices. That doesn't work. We have to organize in a different way because so much is wrong. Domestic violence, climate change, food, housing, education, gun violence, privatization of prisons, immigration. It keeps going on and on. And these are things that impact us right now. So find ways, you know, my advice would be find ways in your local community right now that can make a difference for people. Well said. I want to thank all of the guest speakers for coming on. And thanks to all of you that tuned in. We we have to go in a different direction, you guys. So I really like having these discussions. These are more like brainstorming uh, meetings here. So thank you guys so much. And I'm going to go ahead and end this room on calling. Can, can I just thank you, Sabs, real quick? I, I just want to thank you, Courtney, and, and for everyone here doing this. And I would really want to thank Sab um, for putting this together because, you know, Twitter's a, a medium where a lot of time people are going back and forth with each other. While calling, I found that the left is really taking over calling with Brianna Joy Gray having these type of meetings. You're having these meetings. And we're really having great conversation, even with Free, uh, free Assange saying that there's things that he disagreed with me on, which is great. That's what this is all about, where we disagree, but we find commonalities where we could come together and we can move this movement forward. And I appreciate everyone here for taking the time to do this have a great one thanks so much case yes twitter can be quite toxic sometimes you guys <laughs> all right guys have a good day talk to you later bye 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 bye, -bye. bye. bye y'all you're bye. great <laughs>